I want to begin by just bringing you three quotes from people who have claimed at one point that they are the greatest. Here's the first one. I wouldn't say I'm the best manager, but I'm certainly in the top one. Now, I'm sorry it's not Daniel Fark. It is a legendary Brian Clough who said those words. Then our second quote is from Cassius Clay, who later became Muhammad Ali, who claimed, I am the greatest. And he was a pretty good boxer. Our third quote comes from John Lennon. Some of our folk have just come back from Liverpool. Who's, who's been to Liverpool? Yeah, you've got back. That's great. John Lennon said, Christianity will go, it will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue with that. I'm right, and I'll be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, would say that Jesus towers over all of these claims to be the greatest. He is without doubt the greatest man who ever walked this earth, but of course he is more than a man. And today, as we continue in our series, as we focus on the person of Jesus, we're looking at the Lordship of Christ and our study passage is Colossians 1, 15 to 23. Just a little bit of background. Uh, a crisis had occurred at the church in Colossae. Some new doctrines were being developed and taught that were creating real problems. So Paul writes to the church in order to refute these heretical teachings and reestablish the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, these false teachers at Colossae, they didn't deny the importance of Christ. They simply tried to dethrone him. They will give him prominence, but they wouldn't give him preeminence. In their thinking, Jesus Christ was just many ways in which people can relate to God. And Paul warns against these false teachers in Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. There is a lot of heretic, heretical doctrine around these days, a lot of flaky doctrine. And there are many people who would want to catch, as it were, the last wave of new doctrine. Can I say right from the outset this morning, that any doctrine that isn't backed up by the Word of God should be rejected totally. John Stott talks about having bibline blood. What he means by that is getting the Bible, as it were, into us, as well as getting us into the Bible, so that we, when we face situations we know 
how to handle those situations because the Word of God is in our minds. Keep in mind also that Paul's aim in writing this letter is that they may be encouraged. My goal is they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. There's an echo of this in Paul's letter to the Philippians as he talked about wanting to know Christ. It's not on the screen. But he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. This was Paul's aim, to know Christ for himself and to share Christ with others. And in this passage, Paul exalts Christ in four ways. I'm departing from the three-point sermon. First of all, Jesus is Lord of creation and he deserves our worship. Now, these false teachers were very confused about the whole subject of creation. They taught that all matter was evil, including the human body. So, believing that matter is evil, they argued that God would not have come to earth in a human form, in bodily form. And Paul begins by asserting that Jesus is fully man and fully God. Verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God. And the word image obviously means an exact representation and revelation. In his essence, God is invisible. It's only in Jesus Christ that the invisible God is revealed to us. Jesus is the God who is man and the man who is God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. This verse isn't on the screen either. But Jesus said to Philip on one occasion, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. S.D. Gordon, who was uh, an American author uh, and evangelical preacher, said this, Jesus is God spelling himself out in language that men can understand. I love that. Jesus is God spelling himself out in language that men can understand. So in this first section, Paul describes three aspects of Christ in creation. First of all, Christ existed before creation. He was there from the very beginning, whenever that was. Verse 15, he is described as the firstborn over all creation. Now, some people, including Jehovah's Witnesses, have tried to deny the divinity, the deity of Jesus, saying that firstborn means that God created him. So, if Jesus is a created being, he cannot be God. But the term firstborn depends upon the context in which it's used in Scripture. Jesus is described as the firstborn of Mary. But the Greek word actually can refer to a special status conferred upon something or someone, which denotes preeminence or having first place among all the other 
contenders. So in this verse, firstborn doesn't refer to time, but to position and status. Jesus was there from the very beginning. Now, Jesus was his human earthly name. But as a son of God, he was there with the Father and the Holy Spirit right from the beginning. Christ was God's son before God created anything. John 1.1, in the beginning was the words, and the word was with God, and the word was God. You've just got to substitute Jesus for the word word. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and the word Jesus was God. And for our JW friends, whenever we talk to them, they'll raise this verse. And we just need to say, look, there is no indefinite article in the original Greek. It doesn't say the word was a God. The word was God. So Christ was there before the beginning. Christ created all things. Verse 16, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Since Christ created all things, he cannot be a created being. Through Christ, God created everything that is in heaven and on earth. Created everything that we can see. He created the massive mountains, uh, the minute molecules. Uh, some of you will have traveled this country, maybe across the world, and been amazed at the glory and the splendor of God's creation. I know when we went to New Zealand, uh, we had this motorhome, we're driving, and almost every corner we turned around, words were not sufficient to declare the wonder, the splendor, the glory of God's creation. He created all the mountains. He created the molecules and everything in between. I want to show you this picture. Have you ever seen anything like that? This is the large duck orchid. I'm not making this up, folks. It is a genuine orchid. Doesn't that want to make you worship God? Or did that just happen? There are other splendid orchids. There's one that looks a bit like Elvis Presley. Get Google when you get home. I'm not making it up. I'll tell you when I'm making it up. Isn't that splendid? The large duck orchid. God created everything. Christ created everything we can see. And also the things we can't see in the spiritual world. With powers and rulers and authorities. John 1.3 reminds us and confirms that through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Thirdly, Christ holds all things together. Verse 17, he's before all things and in him all things hold together. Not only did Christ create all things, he sustains everything. Christ maintains the physical world. We've got the song of and we've got the whole world in his hands. Somebody has said Jesus is the nucleus of creation and the glue 
of the galaxies. That's why it works so well. The sun, the moon, the stars stay in their correct places in, in, in the sky. Every day is the same number of hours. We live in a wonderful world. Just one scientific fact this morning. The earth rotates at approximately 1,000 miles per hour at the equator. Some of you are looking a little dizzy at the moment. That's 1,500 feet per second. Why is it you don't just fly off your seats into space? Well, of course, it's gravity that's keeping you on your seats. But it's also Christ who is holding all things together. The laws of the universe that he created. He is Lord of creation. He deserves our worship. You'll recognize these words, many of you, if you're of an age. I see trees of green and red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue and clouds of white, the bright blessed day, the dark sacred night, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. That was Louis Armstrong, as many of you would know. What a wonderful world. We've done our best to spoil it, but it is still a wonderful world. Not only is Christ sovereign in creation, he's Lord of the church. He demands our submission. Verse 18, and he's the head of the church, the body. Paul describes the church as a bride, as a spiritual building, and here as a body. He's speaking of the, the worldwide or the universal church of Jesus Christ made up of followers of Christ from every nation, tribe, and tongue across the earth. Obviously, Christ doesn't live in his body, his physical body on earth anymore. He lives in the bodies of his followers by the power of the Holy Spirit. Just as your head rules your body, so Jesus Christ is Lord of the church, and we submit to his leadership. It's from him we receive our instructions about how to worship, to worship in spirit and in truth, how to evangelize, how to disciple others and be discipled ourselves, how to minister to one another. Now, Mark talked about submission last week, so I'm not going to expand on that today, but Christ is Lord of the church. Thirdly, Christ is Lord over death. He's the beginning and firstborn from among the dead. Jesus Christ is the beginning of the church and is the head of the church. He is also firstborn from the dead. There's that word again, firstborn. Was he the first person ever uh, to be raised from the dead? No. We know people in the Old Testament, and certainly Jesus raised three people from the dead in the New Testament. In fact, every funeral service 
that Jesus went to, he broke up by raising the person back to life. Isn't it amazing that Christ is Lord over death? Firstborn here means that he's the most important person ever raised to life. What is it that sets Christianity apart from every other world, faith, or religion? It is the fact that Christians believe that its leader and founder was raised from the dead on that first day, that Jesus has beaten the last great enemy of death. And do you know what? He shares that victory with us. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's Lord, he is Lord, he's risen from the dead, and he's Lord, and every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And this brings us to the very heart of what Paul is saying, in everything he might have the supremacy. Giving Jesus supremacy is more than just saying the words Jesus was very careful to define what lordship meant in practice. Matthew 7.21 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What is the will of God? Though we discover the will of God in the word of God. We discover the will of God as we engage and encounter with God in prayer. Is it easy to say Jesus is Lord? We may think so. It's only by the Spirit of God we can say Jesus is Lord and actually mean it. Is Jesus Lord of everything in my life? In your life? Is he Lord of our time? Is he Lord of our finances? Is he Lord of my work? Is he Lord of my recreation? Is there an area in my life where I have, as it were, pushed Christ off the throne? Do you know, it is so easy to do that. It doesn't just happen overnight. It's what I would describe as creeping dethronement, where over a period of time, something else takes precedence and preeminence over him. It doesn't have to be a sin, but something that takes our attention and our time away from the Lord. Paul again uh, refutes the idea that Jesus wasn't fully human and fully divine at the same time. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. When we have Christ, we have all of God in human form. So he's Lord of creation. He's Lord over death. We come to the last point that I want to make this morning. He is Lord of reconciliation. Colossians 1.19, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
Christ's death and resurrection provided a way for all people to enter into a relationship with God. We sung this morning that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying that there is now a way open into the presence of God. It's been, it's been made open for anyone who will trust Christ for salvation. We can have peace with God. We can be reconciled to God by repenting and receiving Christ who died in our place. Luke says in Acts, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Can I just gently say this morning, that if you're trusting in anyone or anything other than Christ for salvation, you're on the wrong path. You're on the wrong road. Let me read that verse again. Salvation is found in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Who are you trusting in for salvation? Your own works? The old DIY way? If we could get to heaven on our own initiative, under our own works, what on earth did Christ die for? He died that we might be forgiven. Paul now presents us with a before and after scenario of our spiritual condition. He talks about the past, what we were. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. At one point, we were separated from God. We were alienated from God. Say, I never felt like an alien to God. Look, we're either for God or we're against God. We're either in the kingdom of God or we're out of the kingdom of God. We're either saved or we're lost. There is no middle ground. There is no fence to sit on. We're either in or we're out. goes on to talk about the presence, what we are, the present, what we are now. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. Jesus, the reconciler, coming between a perfect God and sinful man bringing the two of us together to be reconciled, to be at peace with God. And then the future, what we will be, to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. One day we're going to be free from sin as we enter heaven. The Bible says nothing impure will enter heaven. Why? Because if it's impure, impure, it'll spoil everything else. In the meantime, we need to stand firm in our faith. Some of you are facing faith-stretching issues at the moment. Can I remind you that Christ is Lord? He is Lord of your circumstances. 
He doesn't want us to move from the hope that's held out in the gospel. This is one of the most beautiful passages as it talks about the doctrine of Christ. Thing is, doctrine isn't given as just to tickle our brains. It's given so that it'll change our lives. Jesus isn't a man who became God. He's God who became man. J.I. Packer, great author. If you come across any of his books, then do get a hold of uh, one of them and read it. Whatever else in the Bible catches your eye, do not let it distract you from him. And then to finish with, H.G. Wells said this, I'm an historian, I'm not a believer, but I must confess as an historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably, irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Jesus Christ is Lord. As I finish, can I just ask you, is he Lord of our lives? Amen.